Welcome to Zeitgeist. This is a show where we talk about all the latest TV and occasionally movies with a little bit of music along the way. Joining me is my own personal Arthur Miller. That is your co-host, Niv El Boz. How you doing today, man? I'm all right. But thankfully, I don't have a fixation over a woman named Magda. So at least I have that going for me. Thank goodness for that. I uh, will not be your Magda. Thank you. I appreciate that. I also (laughs) will not be calling you any other name beyond your own today. And uh, it's not something that Miss Anna had the uh, pleasure of doing. So Niv, Blonde has already been pretty deeply um, walloped by the critics. That's the movie we're talking about starting out today. Um, Later on, we will dive into the Hulu original Deepwater. But starting off, it's obviously already been panned by the critics, right? And I don't want to um, wallop this movie for another, you know, 45 to an hour but that being said um, obviously we're not going to lie and um, say that this movie has everything that makes up a perfect film right but maybe there is some merit to be had Um, I'll pick apart that in a second that said what do you think in your opinion when you're going into a movie when do you walk out and say man that was just a, that was a tough hang. That was a bad movie. What sort of elements are the things that um, make a bad movie for you? Well, I think that's a really good question because a bad movie can come in all different sorts of shapes and sizes. I mean, there are like bad movies that are so bad that they're good. We call them schlock, you know, the room, uh, which is um, notoriously like famous, uh, you know, as is famous for being like a really bad movie, but it's so bad. It's good. Like, Back in the day, people were really split on the Rocky Horror Picture Show as well. They were like, oh, it's so bad. But then, you know, like with time, it it came to the point where it was more critically acclaimed because it was a romp. You know, it was very schlocky because, you know, it, things about it just have worked. They feel like they're not working, but they are working, you know, and, and whether or not like the, the directors or the writers intended it that way is is entirely available the unintentional comedy yeah the unintentional comedy the un- intentional brilliance in in some of these pieces and th- this has been going on throughout history where you know sometimes it just takes time to retrospect something and and then it becomes brilliant in a different generation but then you have movies that are just truly truly bad and no matter how long it takes it will never be good. well what what specific elements do you think make something that you can say concretely okay wow this is this is just bad and i don't think it's ever going to exceed that i think it's going to um maybe even get worse with time when we have more technology and more resources and maybe new perspectives yeah like you know notoriously one of the worst movies ever made is you know the mario brothers movies movie like the first the original one um the live action one and the reason it's so bad is because a it was like a cheap cash grab that used like a bunch of really weird prosthetics that did not age well at all and when you look at it it's also not true to the source material whatsoever in fact it like veers so far away from it that it's almost insulting to the actual source material which is the nintendo video game mario brothers and the reason i mentioned that is whereas the mario brothers movie was an, an adaptation of the game blonde is an adaptation of a person's life a real person's life well and i'll um 
you're you're right and you're wrong there is that blonde actually was an adaptation in turn of a novel that um he was very very he actually took great pains to kind of stay closer to the novel and to keep in mind that he was adapting a novel and not the life of marilyn monroe that gets complicated very quickly yes but yes the uh the book blonde is from the year 2000 written by uh joyce carol oates who has a number of books that that she and this is a woman got a lot of praise for won a o henry award won the jerusalem prize in 2019 just coming from her wikipedia page so yeah, George Carroll Oates is a well-beloved writer. I have heard it on good authority from other reviewers. Again, I've um, been disseminated a lot of information already about Blonde because I wanted to come in as informed as possible when talking about something so delicate as this, um, a real person's life, is that the novel itself is also dense with trauma and really uh, heavy-handed in its depiction of Marilyn and Andrew Dominic did go further therein, adding other characters, and uh, we'll get into those characters momentarily. But it's uh, safe to say that, yes, this is an adaptation of a novel, but it still stands that this is a real person's life, and the politics of all of that have to come into play. As much as I would love to be able to meet this movie where it stands, there are some things that stand in the way of that. And one of the big ones being that this is Marilyn Monroe's life, and this is the image of Marilyn Monroe that they are continually um, referencing and emulating in deep, deeply particular detail, going so far as to recreating the photographs that were taken of her yeah. in the same aspect ratio in which they were taken. Thus why many of the segments of this movie are in 4-3 aspect ratio, though not all. Most of the film does not take place in the traditional filmic aspect ratio that we're used to. Um, some of it's in black and white, some of it's in color. Again, that's really based off of Andrew Dominic's take on um, the photographs that he has available. So yes, this is an adaptation of a book, but we can say with pretty, pretty deep evidence that this is more than that yeah you you know this better than anyone that one of my favorite films of all time is amadeus which is also a in a in a way its own like biographical film but it's an extrapolation exactly because it's an adaptation of a play uh ultimately as opposed to the actual situation and the reason why that film is brilliant and blonde is not is because we don't have that much information it's it's almost all speculatory you know, like in our previous episode, we talked about perspectives in House of the Dragon and how you have various different perspectives, but they are not the truth. They are not the objective truth. And when you're so like far removed from a history, like a historical period where we didn't have as much information as we have now about a person's life, then it's easier to speculate and there's more, you know, room to create fiction surrounding their lives because it's all based in, in speculations that you read. But with Marilyn Monroe, we have so much information about her because she didn't die that long ago. She she died uh, 40 years ago. No, not 40 years ago, like 60 years ago. And 
I think it's it's really important to to recognize the fact that when you're going out and making a movie about a person and we know that their life was filled with misery and pain. Your job as an artist is not to create even more misery and pain to fulfill a needless sense for drama. And in regards to Marilyn Monroe, you know, she's someone who died, you know, 60 years ago, not 300 years ago. Therefore, we have much more information about her chronicle because not only is her her memory still somewhat, you know, attached in our zeitgeist because of how iconic she is um, and, and sort of like the effect she's had over our generations in terms of fashion, in terms of look, in terms of what that time, even even our thoughts about that time period of the 60s, how they're very much represented by her and, and her and her look. At the same time, you know, like we also know, uh, or, you know, there's a lot of information out there that she lived a very difficult life, a very miserable life, partially because she was so beautiful and so desired. And at this time, there was no Me Too movement to sort of give her a vo- to give her a voice all she felt she had from our understanding as as chroniclers of her life was her talent her intelligence and her beauty but people constantly took advantage of that and so in that way dominic is focusing in on, on a real piece of marilyn monroe's life yes he is but the thing that makes it this movie really terrible is he expands on it with even more misery and pain that didn't exist in her life to create even more senseless drama to sort of like up the misery of this film. But in doing so, it is no longer representative of Marilyn Monroe as a person. It just becomes, instead of it becoming like a, a an actual inspection of her life and sort of deconstructing the image that, that we collectively have about Marilyn Monroe, it becomes almost like torture because that's all it is. We're seeing this woman constantly suffer without a single way out and every single interaction she goes through in this mis- in this movie is filled with absolute misery and absolute pain. So we're coming into this pretty late in the game. This is a movie that's been out for a while. So I thought it would be it would behoove us to look through a lot of things that have already been said about this movie, right? Because again, it's already out of the bag that Blonde is um, pretty uh, unfaithful to Marilyn Monroe's life. But um, I also do want to give highlight to some of the accolades and sort of make peace with a lot of that as well. So um, I'm going to start with a piece from the LA Times today. Um, It reads that there's one moment in Blonde, Andrew Dominic's dazzling and depressing and fatally incurious movie about Marilyn Monroe, they write, when you might not be sure if you're watching Ana de Armas or the genuine article, right? I agree that she does a really wonderful job. Watching this lustrous black and white sequence set during the production of Some Like It Hot, I was briefly certain that this was the real Monroe boop 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 dooping her way through I Want to Be Loved by You, so evocatively does de armas narrow narrow her gaze her eyes are the big giveaway and drink the milky adoration in the spotlight only the absence of that teasing shadow on her dress the one that mimics a rising and falling neckline gives the game away so this is a a moment in the article which 
sort of highlights, I think, the major boon to the movie. It was actually a reason why when I started watching it, I I wasn't immediately turned off the way a lot of other critics were, because I know a lot of people dropped out within the first half of the movie just because it is so brutal. But I think that the thing that really held me together watching Blonde was Ana de Armand's uh, spectacular performance, and I really mean that. You can tell that she gives the role every iota of charisma and timbre that she has to offer, and I uh, agree that... um, you can almost forget that it's someone who obviously has a lot of physical difference to Marilyn Monroe. But there's also great care paid to how she's being portrayed visually on a scene-by-scene basis. Again, like I said, they take a lot of care to replicate real-life photographs, sometime going as far as showing the actual place that she was in at the time, including her final scene um, of her suicide, which has its own ethical, not moral gray area, but something a little bit more condemning. And it uh, ultimately does have a lot of things in place to mercify you into the world, but at the same time has a lot of almost Brechtian-style barriers, which moves us into the fact that Ana de Armas has a lot of difference to uh, Marilyn Monroe, particularly in her voice. Her vocal timbre is mimicking Marilyn to the best of her ability, but at the same time has a little bit of um, personality beyond Marilyn Monroe. And I do feel like maybe Anna's casting in the way that Dominic approached this film honestly was a deliberate attempt to separate the icon from the real person due to the factor of race and accent. And though she gave a perfect picture portrayal of Marilyn, it still had a little bit of that gap. And to say that he um, created a distinctive barrier the way that um, Tarantino did with the Mansons and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think, is going a little bit too far. Um, most have said, and I would um, confer uh, to them, that it does not do a um, exceptional job at putting that barrier in between those two things just because it is so deeply metatextual. So putting the story aside for a moment, do you think that Ana de Armas could have functioned as the lead in a more traditional biopic? Or do you think that um, her best path was actually in a more avant-garde metatextual context? I think that's a really good question. I mean, the theme of our episode, if you haven't guessed, is Ana de Armas, uh, because Jordan and I both think she's an amazing actress and uh, becoming like a tour de force in the acting world in our generation. You know, like, that's why we decided to watch Deep Water and Blonde, because she is leading both those stories. But what is interesting for me is that, like you, I think she's such an incredible actress, but she's just in two not-so-great movies that we're covering, and she gives them some semblance of life to the point where these movies become watchable. And if any other actress would have been in those roles, I don't think they would have been as watchable. Because again, like the the mere challenge in Blonde is that, right? Ana de Armas is Cuban and, you know, she's asked to play a Caucasian woman. You know, that, that in itself is a very difficult thing, not just from an ethnic standpoint, but also just from, you know, a meta ethnic standpoint in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of backlash with the idea that a person of color should play Marilyn Monroe. Again, I completely actually agree with you. And I even 
want to go for, further. I, I think she not only looked like Marilyn Monroe in that movie, she also acted in in such a in such a way that I I at some points I thought she was Marilyn Monroe. And it, and you know it's so interesting because you're right, her voice is the giveaway, but at the same time, the voice doesn't matter. Like that that's part of the the trick of this movie. Her voice doesn't matter. It's all about her looks. And that's where I think this movie is all about the avant-garde because all it does is try to trick you. So that's the thing. I To answer your question, I think it, it would have been a better movie if it was an actual like biopic that you know tore down the the image of Marilyn Monroe and just focused on Norma Jean but instead it was the opposite it was all about the glitz and and the despairing glamour of Marilyn Monroe's life and so it needed to be avant-garde to the point where you know everything was stylistic and and nothing was substantial right and the hyper focusing on the glamour in turn means that a lot of the deeper themes and a lot of the darker and more rife uh, territory, rife with sort of controversy, was not addressed in a way that a lot of people really liked. Um, a lot of people have said that it was disrespectful to Marilyn Monroe. I, I agree. I, I agree in that myself. camp as well. Um, moving forward with the LA Times, here they will also condemn this movie as a um, as something beyond this um, pristine, and it's a lot of the same stuff that we're talking about specifically in the some like it hot territory that they were talking about previously the la times reads even the levitational pleasure and forgive me if i stumble on some of this prose even the levitational pleasure of that some like it hot scene can't last before long this Marilyn isn't singing she's screaming and flailing and bringing the production to a halt Dominic doesn't do much by halves, diva crackups included, and it's dispiriting to realize that this is why he bothered with this particular Hollywood recreation. Monroe, then just four years away from her death of a barbiturate overdose at age 36, was already deep in the throes of addiction. Stories of her difficult remembering of her difficulty remembering her lines and her less than congenial treatment by Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon, and Billy Wilder are legion. It couldn't matter less to Dominic that she wound up giving one of her greatest funniest performances anyway what matters is the chance to unleash monroe's many demons a miserable childhood a rapacious industry a cavalcade of bad brutalizing men and bring them rushing to the surface not for the first or the final time so here comes the inevitability and something we've already touched on which is the actual properties of the material uh, which can often range from psychologically distressing to full-on sexual assault which occurs in motif over and over with various partners throughout her ears this is something that i um i truly can't stand from a uh from from a from my own perspective though this um has a lot of really beautiful imagery i think that the imagery is ultimately um taken over by these themes and as time goes on i think the film relies more and more and more on the themes that it introduces early on and one of the major reasons why i i couldn't meet this movie on its own terms is because its narrative structure is um far too cyclical it instead of raising the stakes simply adds new characters and new fodder for the machine that it has created which is effectively a trauma machine both sexual and otherwise 
And that is the film that ends up playing out for a whole three hours. This uh, also takes often a Freudian approach, right? I um, made a glib joke about this uh, early in our podcast using the name Daddy over and over again with various men, most of the men that she has a sexual relationship with. And this, of course, critiques her relationship with her father, which is a a big, big moment early in the film where she is told that she has a, um, a father that's waiting for her. This is the psychological drive for Marilyn in the film. Despite the fact that um, this, alongside pregnancy, which is also a major theme, are things that don't really come up in a lot of the material that uh, Andrew Dominic is drawing from, the um, primary material, not the secondary material from Joyce Carol Oates. This is all pretty much whole cloth. And um, in a moment, I will uh, talk about a positive review to hopefully see the film as what possibly could be viewed in an objective light, or at least in a light that we aren't um, following, and we can sort of um, combat that as well. But I um, also think it's interesting the ways it subtly couches the elephant in the room and something that's already been pained over, which is the way that Marilyn Monroe's legacy was besmirched by misogyny. And as uh, personally not a fan of misogyny, I think that um, the film has uh, more problems than it does beautiful accolades. Yeah, because as you said, it becomes almost like a machine where it just doles out the same product each time. And what I mean by that is the same conflict happens in each quarter of the film where she's with a man, a set of men in one case, and those men take advantage of her or abuse her or, you know, are not showing her the love she deserves, you know, and it's it's the same. It's it's the same conflict with different faces, with different clothes. Right. Over and over and over again. Let's go let's go mechanical here in case our audience is unfamiliar with story structure as a screenwriter um how do you approach escalation and in what ways do you feel like blonde either succeeds or fails in that I mean usually you start basically with your your setup right you have you, you present your characters you present the world that they're in and then you know in the first 15% of your story you essentially insert the inciting incident of like why is this story different from all other stories like how what is making it different what is making the story special and to be fair Andrew Dominic does have an inciting incident his inciting incident is the um, introduction of the idea of her father but the father being absent and then her mother's death which propels her into the machine that this film operates uh, under right like she didn't die i think she oh she was put in a uh, a ward a sanitarium yeah sanitarium but she tried to kill her daughter yeah, yeah, and then yeah. there was a fire and yeah she uh, she did live her life in the sanitarium cuz yes right uh Marilyn kept visiting her mother and then eventually her mother did pass and essentially the escalation moving from there is you know the the whole idea that the stakes keep rising for for Marilyn uh, or they should be they should keep rising but they don't you know like in so many ways the stakes remain the same at least for her because it's the same conflict as we talked about just in different different faces and different shades and different you know costumes just different men and in the middle of the movie there should be something called the midpoint where it completely changes the movie it becomes like a totally different feel and that sort of does happen but it also sort of doesn't the first half deals with just Marilyn before her drug 
drug addiction and the second half deals with Marilyn and her drug drug addiction. So it's like broken down that way, but it doesn't, while it creates like a different feel for the character, it doesn't change the, the feeling of like, wow, this is just miserable. And the feeling really, I think, is largely on a cast that is, uh, is there anything above A tier? Adrian Brody, Bobby Cannavale. Yeah. <laughs> like these people are definitely in a high class Oscar contender movie, in a sense. Um, they work for what they need to do. And um, particularly Brody, I think, is always a highlight. Yeah, he does the best. I mean, I've seen him in movies as uh, as schlocky as they come, and he mm-hmm. rises above, right? They all run as equals to Ana de Armas, but doesn't change the material. So I uh, wanted to continue with another review. Again, this one is a positive review. There are... Really very few. And this one is from Darren Carver, uh, Balsinger on Letterboxd. He is a reputable writer. I believe he's a freelancer throughout his career and now is just sort of a hobbyist. So, you know, obviously don't send him hate mail. But I have some um, qualms with the way that he approached his positive review, which I think is interesting because, you know, there are things to like. And when I was watching it, I was like, I'd be interested to see the way in which someone approached this from a good faith perspective, considering there are a million other perspectives, most of them bad fit. So Darren reads, the vast majority of Blonde is a masterpiece, he says. It is at times unpleasant, to say the least, right? And its constant commitment style will ultimately limit its audience, but Blonde is astonishingly executed. It is an audacious work, one plucked from both fantasy and reality, right? This is from Dominic's uh, perspective as well. He says, it is not a stream of abuse, but a film which lingers on pain, whether emotional, physical, or self-inflicted. If this was a movie not about a famous person that we know, that we like know of, that we know that is, for lack of a better word, a person that had, you know, a very, very troubled life. We just took away that. We took away the sound. Like if we made this film silent, completely silent, then I could maybe agree that the movie could be brilliant because it's all about the style. It's all about the style that is presented to us, the audience. And the style is great. The editing of this film is great. The way the cinematography is great. You know, there there's a lot of like really cool compositions that happen in this film, like really unique, really smart compositions and, and screen pictures that you see. But ultimately, the bad far outweighs the good. And to call this a masterpiece is a disgrace. It's a disgrace simply because it's not. It's it's quite the opposite, not just because it's like an objectively bad movie, but it's a bad movie because it becomes literally the predator that it's showcasing. You know, like it's showcasing the predator the how men are predators and how men have been predatory towards Marilyn Monroe. I love I love what you said just there that the film itself becomes the predator. It um, doesn't it doesn't run away from the themes in which it is uh, it is portraying which um, the reviewer finds to be a positive but in turn I believe that it in fact relishes in it in a um, deeply um, uncouth sort of way yeah. it's really pretty um, joyful in the way in which it continually continually dives back into 
all of this suffering and grotesque violence. Um, it's It utilizes a lot of the similar violence I mentioned in uh, House of the Dragon, um, which I found to be very distasteful, which is the pregnancy stuff, right? The burden of womanhood, as I mentioned in that episode. And you can go back and listen to my take on that with more detail. But in this particular case, uh, the burden of womanhood is even greater because Dominic relies not just on the womanhood of Marilyn Monroe, but Marilyn Monroe herself, the icon of Marilyn Monroe, right? Because Throughout the movie, she is two different people, supposedly, right? She says she is Norma Jean, but she puts on the face mm -hmm. of Marilyn. And this means that um, throughout the film, you get this duality. But because Andrew Dominic believes Norma Jean to want all of these things that were never explicitly said by Marilyn and her life, it is um, putting words in her mouth. And it means that there is a lot of exploitation that the film does to a person who can't defend herself, which I think is is the worst thing of all. To um, come after a dead person, to me, is um, pretty morally reprehensible. And I've seen it happen in other cases, um, cases that are um, maybe a little bit more uh, controversial or less controversial, depending. But in pretty much any case, coming after a dead person, I think, is in really poor taste. And letting, letting them lie is smart. And I think it's interesting that they talked about the way in which they felt like Marilyn Monroe's ghost was haunting the set in a positive way. Because in anything, I think it was Marilyn attempting to tell Dominic to use his um, great talents, which are um, massive, right? Uh, Dominic is a fantastic creator, and I think he's got another good movie in him, as long as he thinks long and hard about the film he just made and the way in which it may have been hurtful to not only Norma Jean's legacy, but to women. Absolutely. You know, just to round off that too, I would be, re me, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that there is like a very strong and unnecessary pro-life message in this film that is attached to Norma Jean slash Marilyn Monroe that didn't actually happen, you know, and it just piles on more misery. Like there is a plot point in the movie that, you know, she gets an abortion and the baby she aborted talks to her constantly and makes her feel bad about the abortion but in reality like from all like the research that's available to us today about Norma Jean she wanted a child really really badly her entire life and she wasn't able to get any children because she mis miscarried a bunch of times so that's just an, a base example of how this film moves beyond just like the misogyny and the expectation in terms of like her looks but goes on an even deeper level in terms of like her relationship with her body and our like understanding of who she was as a person. And again, it just exploits it all, all her memory and all her amazingness as a person and just to create cheap tragedy. I want to believe that um, Dominic had the best intentions in mind, but that was audacious. It was um, truly so beyond the pale of what is acceptable in our modern era. And I want to go back to sort of the um, larger global point that we were talking about at the beginning. 
to me, I think what makes the difference between a movie that you can look at in 50 years and laugh and a movie in which you just have to sit and groan is ultimately it's politics, right? It's the way in which it portrays people. And if you are moving in such an aggressively regressive way, if you're talking about the way in which, you know, Dominic views women in this film, which is that um, Marilyn was destined to be a mother and how reductive that is that her um her business essentially was this side project is is so i mean it's even reductive for the time in which Marilyn lived uh, amazingly enough it manages to be even further regressive to that and i i just see that being the thing that condemns it for pretty much all time and i think the only thing that is uh stopping it from being totally put on the sidelines is the fact that there isn't a um, very clearly big Marilyn Monroe movie that has been made of this scale before. Um, obviously, there have been other biopics throughout the years, but um, none of this scale and none of this production value, certainly. And unfortunately, I think this is sort of a detour to what might eventually be a more seminal Marilyn Monroe picture, one that, is, as you said, that is a little bit more traditional and ultimately gets the facts right. Yeah. So I'll uh, read one more piece from the review from Carver, or Carver Balsinger. Blonde has a haphazard structure, he says. This is a positive review. Um, bouncing around Marilyn Monroe's life. But what a collection of moments it gathers. The film is an endless stream of carefully crafted images, almost chaotically assembled. The cinematography is absolutely stunning, which I agree with. Almost every shot is a perfect al <laughs> this is a new word for me, amalgam of strong-willed artistic visions. Though the film does fail sometimes with cameras strapped to actors in distracting ways, vertical shots that seem meaningless, and a recur recurring CG fetus, which is probably a bit much for any movie, yet Blonde's maximalist approach, this is where he defends it, to cinema means that it spends every minute in some kind of whirlwind, whether emotionally or formally. This seemingly random artistic choice and uh, changes all contribute to something that sweeps across life without playing everything the same. I disagree with that. Um, Blonde is about the lack of consistency, that uncertainty of oneself and one's desires. This is Marilyn going through her own 18 and a half, he says. Wow invoking Fellini here. But uh, here we get a film about a series of men who enter her life and stifle her happiness. Some are just imaginary voices like her father and children, yet everyone here is nameless, just ciphers within the world of Marilyn Monroe. Blonde is not reality and never pretends to be so. Here I think is um, where I disagree with him. It is an unearthed mosaic of M Monroe's life filled with pieces that create a partial picture and finished off with what one could imagine the rest to look like. Now here, I think I have to say that because Dominic is so forthcoming with the violence that it makes it much more difficult for us to imagine a Monroe life in the film that is different from this. You know, I think if maybe Dominic had taken his foot off the gas for 
two and a half seconds throughout this three-hour picture, you could see a little bit more of the real life of Marilyn and the stuff that is a little bit more uh, real and, and like maybe even humorous, right? Because she had a lot of joy and humor in her life. But instead, you have this segment early in the film, which I think is before it really gets into a lot of the real life stuff. And this was when I could sort of differentiate the character of Norma Jean in the film Blonde from the real Norma Jean that um, lived among us some 60, 70 years ago. Her relationship with Cass Chaplin and uh, Eddie Robinson is something, again, created out of whole cloth. Um, these are two real-life characters that are both smirched in the eyes of the film and created to become no less than two sexual predators who spark a polyamorous relationship with Norma Jean, and she has sort of a somewhat exploited, um, somewhat consensual relationship with these two men throughout the early parts of her career until she starts to uh, date Do Joe DiMaggio. But it really it creates this barrier in the film in which could have been utilized to make Marilyn Monroe her own character, and instead it relies and defers to a fictionalized, completely fictionalized, I believe this um, relationship was not in the Joyce Carol Oates book, a completely fictionalized version of Monroe in which she is only in relation to men. And that is ultimately, I think, where I have to disagree with him and say that uh, this is not a, um, a chaotic semblance. This is a deliberate construction, and that construction is laid on the bedrock of misogyny and um, the male gaze. <laughs> the reviewer also had like an oxymoron moment, right? Where he was like, oh, it was carefully but chaotically constructed. Two opposing things entirely. So it's nonsensical to begin with. But you're right. Like, I think that it was deliberate. I don't think it was necessarily malicious, you know, from Andrew Dominic's point of view. But I think that it ultimately still became quite predatory because it was so deliberate. It was so deliberate to to make this tragedy happen over and over and over before our eyes. And as you said earlier on in this episode, it never truly focused on the successes of Marilyn Monroe as a person individually. Like there were hints of it, you know, like when she is talking to Arthur Miller and she's actively questioning, you know, his character's motivations in, in the play. And she refers to three sisters to show her intelligence and, and her dedication to her craft and Arthur, Arthur Miller is like where did you read that from one of uh, from a review did you she's like no I came up with it myself and, and it's, it's moments like that that shows her intelligence but purely as as like a response to misogyny which is awful because that is not the the litmus test of who she was as a person right well this is interesting too these beacons of misogyny right arthur miller people who are very famous and i believe are also deeply besmirched in the i need to find another word from besmirched who are just like they're they're taken advantage of in this film and miller is one i also need to highlight it's i think probably the biggest hurdle in the film and and one of the latter ones this is why niv i thought it was important for you to watch the entire movie is because in some way uh, if if there is an escalation to be had, it is to the point of JFK in which 
Marilyn Monroe is hauled into his hotel room by two guards and she isn't allowed to walk. She's dragged in there after she's been drugged. And then she asks if she's just meat. She's thrown into this hotel room and JFK, while on the phone, effectively forces her to complete a sexual act all the while. And this is the crazy part. All the while, the Friendship 7 rocket launch is on screen. And so you get quite literally a phallic symbol launching into space as JFK releases himself. And in the context of a Simpsons episode, I think this would have been totally apt. In the context of this movie, it's is it trolling? Is it just Dominic and Ernest? No, I think I think it's just kind of like it was a, like we have in our society such an idea about JFK that his death was ultimately a tragedy, and it was. There is no question about that. But his de- death is, is also related to like the idea of patriotism, right? That ultimately like it represented a great tragedy in the United States. And when you tie like the presidency and the president that dies, you know, to an image of great American strength or patriotism, you. Think think about like the rocket launches because that was the signifying things uh, of the cold war right the idea that the space race was happening and in the cold war and it it exerted power between these two really big nations of the soviet union and the united states so i think it's like it's not necessarily trolling it's just mis guided in the sense of like, yeah, let let me show you the American strength and how the American strength is like potentially really destructive in the hands of a president that in in history's eyes was at the very least a cheater, at the very worst, a rapist, you know, and people don't talk about that because he got assassinated. Like, I think if he died of natural causes, we would give a deeper retrospect, like an inspection of JFK, of who he was as person but you know like i read that jfk did have a lot of extra marital relationships not just with marilyn monroe but with a bunch of people yeah and some of that is even mentioned but still marilyn monroe is not a a confirmed person to have had these extramarital relationships which is noteworthy i think it's it's fine for a film to suggest it and maybe even depict it because it was pretty much everything but it, it is very easy to extrapolate things like that. But again, Dominic doesn't just do that. He paints JFK as a arbiter of misogyny and a, I mean, he effectively assaults Marilyn Monroe in one of many, many, many sequences in which that kind of thing happens. Closing off, I want to be able to give Dominic his own light for a moment and be able for him to effectively talk about what his intention of the film was. And I'm going to go back to the LA Times for that, which is that uh, Dominic acknowledged skipping some of, this is from the Times, uh, the seven-year itches star's achievements, including forming her own production company in the face of the studio system, a very feminist thing, dealing with the Red Scare witch hunts well married to Arthur Miller in the late 50s, again, a very progressive idea, and boosting the career of singer Ella Fitzgerald when a nightclub was afraid to book a true jazz singer. That would have been very interesting because it would have paralleled a movie that has a lot in common with this, but I feel like is a little bit more effective, the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie, which I really liked. That stuff, it reads, is not what really what the film is about. This is Dominic's quote. It's about a person who is going to be killing themselves, he says. So it's trying to examine the reasons why they did that. 
It's not looking at her lasting legacy. I mean, she's not even terribly concerned with any of that stuff. He says, if you look at Marilyn Monroe, she's got everything that society tells us is desirable. She's famous. She's beautiful. She's rich. If you look at the Instagram version of her life, she's got it all. And she killed herself, he says. This is Dominic's take on the film. So as you can see, maybe it's just of one of one body, of one um, viewpoint. I certainly don't share that viewpoint with Dominic. But it is of its own vision. And ultimately, I think it's good that uh, Netflix is allowing a lot of directors to create these kinds of movies. I just actually watched a screener this week of a filmmaker who is maybe at the top echelon of things. He's made some very, very well-known um, works, and he has made a film for Netflix that is similarly of a whole vision, is a little bit uncomfortable as well, but is so, so fantastic. And I can't wait to cover it on the show once it's finally released. But um, ultimately, I think Netflix is good for the business in the sense that they give you a blank check and they send you on your way. In this case, I think Dominic may, might have just utilized that for ill not intentionally, of course, and not with any kind of malice, but nonetheless, it is still a regressive movie. And while beautiful, I don't see myself rewatching it anytime soon. So what, if anything, do you think could have been salvaged by taking the knife to Blonde? If you had the editing booth and you needed to save this film, what would you do? Uh, make it a silent film that's very dazzling and very avant-garde. And also not make it about Marilyn Monroe. Make it about you know, a starlet. So it was sort of like The Artist, the movie The Artist, which was also a silent film that won Best Picture. But make it similar to that, that, you know, like a starlet is is essentially struggling with like the people's expectations of her purely by her body and how and her looks, even though she's far more talented and, and far more driven than the rest of them and far more successful than the rest of them as well. And I think like that in itself is a very base way of looking at it. Like people will listen to and be like, huh, that's just hyper feminist or just like it, it pretends to be feminist. It just does. It, it does a very basic job. But at the same time, there is no other way to to make this film. And what's worse. available is ultimately what we were just talking about. It's all the same type of stuff. So cutting around it would mean you would probably be turning a three hour film into a 30 minute film and utilizing every possible way to go around it. There would be a lot more of that um, that waterfall imagery, I think, in my cut. Because that was my favorite shot, and that was, I think, the last time I was like, I'm enjoying this film. No CGI babies. That's for sure. Yeah, the uh, the, the fetus stuff yeah. has to, has to go. Has to I go. hope that I, I really hope I never have to see something like that in a movie again. Dominic, I hope that you've, um, you've sealed the date on that. Obviously, a film neither of us really enjoyed. Um, in a second, we're going to be talking about Deep Water, which I actually think has some merit to it, and I think is a fun, enjoyable movie, if not a little bit um, campy at points, and um, a little strange and unusual, and maybe not um, the fair for everybody. But um, nonetheless, I would say Blonde is a movie I, I wouldn't turn on again. I wouldn't recommend it to most people. In fact, I think there are uh, better movies that come 
cover these themes um, already. Luckily, we're in a more progressive era where there are a lot of movies this year that deal with gender-based politics, deal with stuff that is really heavy-handed and really themic in the a way this movie does, but in a way that doesn't discredit the character in which it, it takes place with and all of the sideline characters as well are equally discredited along the way. So that's my take on Blonde. So with that, we are going to be taking a quick break to listen to some music, and then we are going to get into deep water. Stay tuned, guys. <laughs> All right, so let's talk Deep Water. So Deep Water is a film that was originally slated for theaters. It ended up on Hulu earlier this year. It is the other major Ana de Armas movie. And I thought both of these movies were going to be huge for her. I had been planning for this podcast in my own brain for a very long time. And it's interesting being out on the other side. Deep Water mm-hmm. is a good reminder of things that tend not to catch much attention in the general public. And generally for good reason. There's really a huge chance that when a screenwriter is approached to write something that either the film will never see the light of day or will end up getting rewritten out of house and home, right? Um, Niv, you and I off mic were just talking about that in relation to the movie Three Kings. This would even be an interesting tie-in. What were you saying about the way that David O. Russell rewrote Three Kings? Well, the interesting thing about Three Kings, which was like a movie all the way and something like 20 years ago or something like that. Basically, David Russell didn't actually write the script for it. He directed it, but he's he's credited as per- the person who wrote the script. And to, it was released in 1999. And basically, the person who wrote the actual film is John Ridley, who also wrote 12 Years a Slave. And when he wrote the screenplay, it was titled Spoils of War. And he only wrote it as an experiment for himself to see how fast he can write and sell a film. The writing took him seven days and Warner Brothers bought the script 18 days later. But then Warner Brothers like showed their newly acquired scripts to David O. Russell. And David O. Russell was really interested by the tagline of the film, which was like a heist in the Gulf War. And he took that idea and he took that script that John Ridley wrote as reference to the script he ended up writing, which was Three Kings. And he used a bunch of like the set pieces and a bunch of dialogue within like Spoils of War. And he didn't even let John Ridley know that the movie was being made so when the movie was nearly finished uh john ridley was basically he received like the new script of three kings and he didn't see his name at all he just saw like uh, written by david russell which is insane like the only uh, sort of compensation that warner brothers offered him was that he would get a story by credit even though he wrote most of the movie and he created the whole concept for the film in the first place crazy how the industry works works. And that's kind of an unfortunate downside of it. But I think it's important to have that reality forward, especially because of the content war that's happening right now. There's just so much happening. And there's even more uh, opportunity for these things to happen. Although hopefully, because of the shifts that have happened in the industry over the past couple of years, that isn't going to happen in such a broad scale. But nonetheless, there is two writers credited for Deep Water, one who is largely believed to be the 
the rewriter, and Zach Helm, who is kind of the main guy, I believe. The other one is Sam Levinson, who you and I love from Euphoria, which we'll get into that a little bit later. The director is Adrian Lyne, director of Flashdance and Fatal Attraction, very much in the same oeuvre as Deepwater. He insists that he had final cut, but I have my doubts. Uh, Lyne's film has been criticized by critics for lacking much of the punch that was expected in an erotic thriller. I'm going to go back to the same thing I did in the last segment and read a segment from Baltimore Magazine. They write about deep water. This is a negative review. Deep water is dull as dishwater. Strong start. It seems to have all of the elements of this kind of upscale, upscale, sophisticated trash I've been craving. So clearly they like the line level of work. It seems to have all the elements of the kind of upscale, sophisticated trash I've been craving, but it's missing some of the key factors, dramatic tension, believable character behavior, and yes, sex. I've seen good Adrian Lyne erotic thrillers, and this ain't one of them. So, Niv, how would you summarize the plot of Deep Water? Do you think this film has a specific audience it could connect to, or does it struggle with that? I think it struggles with it. Only because like it's trying to be more contemporary and like a chalk value, right? Because Line is, you know, he hasn't been making films in the past twenty years, from my understanding, and it feels like it. It feels like it. Not not to say anything against him, you know. Like I've seen Fatal Attraction. I I actually re- rather like it, you know. But I think he's he's directing for a bygone era. Back then, the eroticism was more like the slightest things back then were explosives. Ex- explosives to the audience because they weren't used to you know someone naked on on screen and pushing the envelope in terms of like sex at least very very loosely but here you know like sam levinson who wrote the script is a showrunner for euphoria which is (laughs) shock value every episode and and it's just one uh show out of many that pushes the envelope even further you know game of thrones completely destroyed (laughs) any form of you know laxiness when it comes to just like tame media yeah we just talked about how house of the dragon really nails in the brutality on tv on hbo but on tv absolutely and i think that's just the thing we live in a world now where we're numb to this kind of stuff we're not shocked by it anymore and when you try to direct a movie as if it's like the 1990s and, and it's erotica. People prefer it to be more like Lars von Trier erotica now versus 90s fatal attraction erotica because it just doesn't shock us anymore it just feels tame which is again in its own way interesting retrospective of how in in our society we have we've become really numb to just sort of sex and i think that's both a good thing and a bad thing because we're also numb to brutality yeah and so this movie doesn't hit you the same way and so it can't rely on also that shock factor to really draw you forward right it used to be that these style of films could draw an audience in just by shock value alone and not have to worry so much about the mechanical stuff obviously it's good if the mechanical stuff is there i think in adrian line's best work it is there but i wouldn't say flash dance is you know a 10 banger for me it's got a lot of good moments but there is a lot of plot in flash dance that's kind of you know shaggy it's not bad it's just a little shaggy and i would say that that might be my um, general take on deep water as 
well. But we'll get into that in a second. I want to read a second review before we dive in here. So this is from the City AM, which is a London newspaper. It talks a little bit about beginning with the source material, which I'll get into also. Based on the book by Patricia Highsmith, almost nothing works. Again, so this is a negative review. In a film that's even devoid of eroticism, the first half holds some mystery, but it soon becomes a tale of two people who don't seem to like each other yet continue to live in the same house. Whether or not this feels realistic depends on your personal situation, but contempt is rarely sexy. Think I would agree with that. The sex scenes involve brief shots of Dearmas writhing in a car with other men, while one horrifying sequence sees Affleck staring blankly at the object of his affection with camera work so shaky it might cause travel sickness. Now, I personally get motion sick very easy. I have no idea the shot that this reviewer is talking about, but um, nonetheless, I would agree that a lot of the sex is tame to the modern audience. I would even say that the stuff that felt a little bit more scintillating in the thrillers of your I mean, there's famous scenes from Fatal Attraction that I've just encountered on my day-to-day life, whether it be through just being at a party or whatever. Nonetheless, it feels very, very, very mid-career in the sense that it doesn't want to take a risk. It isn't hungering to take a risk, and it's not hungering to develop the genre nearly as much as I was expecting it to, which is a little unfortunate, but I do think that it still has a lot of fun interplay characteristically that makes up for a lot of that. So no, it's not necessarily scintillating and leg shaking, but it's got some fun moments nonetheless. It doesn't necessarily have to make you go, ooh, ow, in the way that House of the Dragon certainly will occasionally, for better or for worse, which if you listen to the episode, you hear how I think it is both better and worse. So it's also, I would say, similar to a specific in one specific way anyway, to a semi-loose adaptation that received mixed reviews, Don't Worry Darling. So this was semi-adapted from the Patricia Highsmith book. There is a little bit of changes made, not a ton. It's not quite as deeply rewritten in this case, but it is similar to Don't Worry Darling because that was semantically an original screenplay by the grandsons of Dick Van Dyke, but was actually written by Booksmart writer Katie Silberman. A big change that that this film does that that film also does is it leans into the two leads chemistry more so. This is all pulled from a YouTuber that I found that did a in-depth comparison of these two. So it leans more into the chemistry between Vic and Melinda in the original book. Their chemistry is kind of stilted, which is the reason why Vic ends up doing a lot of the things he ends up doing, which we will talk about a little bit later in our spoiler conversation. But that means that in this film, the character relationship is a bit grayer morally because you don't get a sense that these characters hate each other. You get a sense that they are fascinated and in fact have a lot of intimacy left in their relationship. There's just a little bit of bugginess along the way. So in the original book, as recounted by YouTube's How the Book Wins, uh, Melinda has almost no passion for her husband, Vic. But in the film, they have to because these actors have such massive chops. Obviously, they dated in real life 
while this movie was filming. Then they broke up. Then about a year passed. Then the movie came out on Hulu. I think Disney didn't really know what to do with Deep Water. Do you feel like the two of natural chemistry? I do. But I think that just the way the movie is written, that chemistry doesn't have a lot of moments to shine, which sort of sucks because those are the characters that we spend the most time with. And I feel like Melinda in particular is, isn't is given much to do beyond just have affairs, which is really frustrating. It's the thing that frustrated me the most throughout this film, because once again, Ana de Armas is basically thrown around from guy to guy in a film, just like we talked about in Blonde. That's identical to Blonde. That's very interesting. So she's always in relationship to other men. Yes, exactly. And that's sort of the only moment that we see any form of voice she has in relation to a different man. And Ben Affleck, however, on the other side of thing is like, oh yeah, I'm I'm the sad man who is who's being betrayed by my wife. And that's also frustrating because I actually thought the best lines in the movie, some of the some of the script was actually really well written. It was really well written. And the best lines were always given to Ben Affleck because you could sense his frustration and he had a lot of dimension where he's like, yeah, I'm going to be sarcastic and I'm just going to blow things off because she's my wife and I love her. But this is really, really bothering me because we have a child together and I know that I should be like the type of husband that shouldn't trap my wife. But at the same time, she is actively hurting me. I felt like that was the only thing that was actually interesting in this film, that Ben Affleck was like, oh, my wife should be able to do whatever she wants. You know, we are in a modern marriage where I don't trap her. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that kind of guy, even though society expects me to be this kind of person. But then he deeply desires to be that kind of person because there is that that sort of argument where one side of the relationship can do whatever they want. And if not, it's entrapment. That in itself is sort of like cyclical and a fallacy because, you know, there should be respect in both ends of the relationship. Agreed. And I think it also leads for a lot of um, weirdness kind of just in terms of like how they're genderly placed. And I think in both sides of this relationship, the gender dynamic ends up actually deepening in really kind of toxic ways and Melinda ends up becoming more like coquettish and Vic becomes obviously more emotionally constipated. Yeah, but I think that's where this is harmful because there were moments in the film where Melinda calls him out on it. She basically says the reason that I am with guy to guy, like going from guy to guy is because you're not trapping me, because you're not fighting for me. You're not like actively treating me like I'm your wife. You're just giving me respect and freedom, which in and it's is a really harmful statement to say because it's caricaturizing that end of the relationship on a Diarmas's character because that's the thing Ben Affleck's like exploration in terms of like his characterization in relation to the zeitgeist that we're in the 2022 year that we're in where men are put under a microscope that in itself is interesting because men should give freedom to their partners they should not be abusive they should not entrap them but at the same time men should be respected and at the same token women should be respected they should also give the same thing right and that is the thing that they're missing is any kind of respect, any kind of, there's a love for each other. I think this is something that is actually interesting to me. And what drew me into the film and what made me really like parts of the film is that I 
felt like that sort of toxic cycle was engaging and was enrapturing and was unique and idiosyncratic. And also the character of Melinda is very loose and Armas gets a lot of freedom in it, right? In Blonde, you see her really kind of stuck in the character of, it's just totally different acting styles and that just kind of shows how great Ana de Armas really is. She is so entrapped in this character of Marilyn Monroe in Blonde, whereas here she gets to kind of do whatever she wants which is awesome and fun and I think really unique opportunity to be able to just like see these two people interact in that way. And the script allows them to do a lot of that. And I think that is where I find found the most joy in it. Obviously, that means that there might be some mechanical issues. And I can't imagine that the mechanical issues slipped by you, Nick. No, because again, like I agree with you that watching on and Moss was great because she salvages so much of that character, which is her performance. You know, like she's she's an amazing performer. She's, as you said, like her looseness, I don't think was very much written in the script. I think Ana de Armas herself was able to to tap into that and make that character her own. But at the same time, like I said, the amount of work done in the script is mostly done for Vic. We understand his motivations. We understand how he's hurt and why he does what he does in the rest of this movie. And with Melinda, we were told the motivations she has, but they just don't make sense because they also change a lot in, in rapidly and nonsensical different ways. And we'll get to that soon in, in spoilers. Yeah, very soon. But at the same time, it's very harmful as we talked about in Blonde, Blonde was a harmful sort of depiction of Marilyn Monroe. I feel like Deepwater in a lot of ways is, is harmful for how women are, are shown in this kind of situation. And it's also just a very 90s perspective of how women are shown in these kinds of situations. Interesting point. Well, you think about Fatal Attraction and you think about a movie like Basic Instinct, women are characterized. They're femme fatales in a lot of ways. And it's the man that is the actual person that struggles and is the rugged anti-hero who falls in love with the femme fatale, but at the very end is the person who actually struggles. That's like a 90s trope to have. But isn't a femme fatale kind of fun to explore in 2022? It is, but this movie doesn't do anything to sort of modernize it in any interesting ways. And that's what makes it harmful. I think that her approach is maybe I I see it as as possibly that. I mean, certainly there's something timeless about the way their bread and butter really is. They go to parties. Everyone has always gone to parties. She dates younger men. People have done that for centuries. She is, you know, in a marriage. Marriage has occurred as long as I've been alive. I don't, you know, can't really say beyond that. But also, so you were you were tapping into something that I also wanted to tap in on because, you know, I, I love to be able to at least play devil's advocate at the very least, but I do want to concede a little bit because there is a particularity that you haven't quite touched on, which is that you really get all of her life from Vic's perspective. And because we're so focused on her relationship to Vic, even though I feel like maybe there was maybe a deficit occasionally of that that rat-a-tat, she has her own unique and fully independent life that is depicted off screen. And that life is just ripped away from her from the engine of the film. So the opportunity to see that normalcy, the normalcy really is to me the most interesting thing by and large is the situation they're in, the game they play. And so when the story engine really kicks into full gear, there's less of that 
to use because obviously there's a story that needs to be told. Well, there is one thing I want to say to that because I think that is a very good point. But at the same time, it just feeds back into my point of it being a trope. Because again, in Basic Instinct and in Fatal Attraction, two high points of that erotic thriller style that really popped in the 90s. It was the same thing. You focused on the man and the woman was a caricature. And it was like intentional. It was intentional because the women were in those films were the ones that were characterized into these erotic sort of specimens. That was the engine to push that erotic thriller in the first place. It was like the women almost <laughs> being that plant that eats people. The Venus flytrap. Yeah, it, they were like Venus flytraps. But we talked about a way that femme fatales could be modernized in our time. And the best example of that I can think of is Gone Girl. Gillian Flynn's Gone Girl, David Fincher's Gone Girl. And this film in a lot of ways also reminds me of it. And not only because Ben Affleck is starring it, but it also- Ben Affleck is the obvious connection there. Yeah, but also the way it's shot. It's also like super dark. There's like a David Fincher- esque lens that happens the entire time because it's it's always shot in like a bluish sort of darkish hue and it's in this suburban area in sort of like a suburbia that we don't really know where they are and it's also between like two people that are having like a troubled marriage i see a lot of that i see exactly what you're talking about and jillian flynn i even did some research and jillian flynn apparently uh, like one of her inspirations was patricia I'm Moore's Deep Water. That's true. And now she's, of course, working alongside film. And I believe, actually, Deep Water was the reason why it was picked out of the pile, the draw pile, is exactly because she paid it lip service. So this movie has her to thank, no doubt. Gillian Flynn can't be understated in our culture. She has made a lot of work that most people consider seminal. Yeah, but just to end on this final point, the reason Gone Girl is successful, and I believe Deep Water isn't, is because it does show both sides. You see both uh, sides of perspectives. And that's like the whole engine that moves that film. You see literally both their perspectives. And it's a twist on the genre. Even though one could consider Gone Girl a dark thriller versus an erotic thriller. The film I don't feel like would be irreparably changed in any detrimental way for showing more of Melinda. In fact, I think it would have been dramatically improved to see Melinda do more of what she does because she's an engaging and interesting character and the game she plays is interesting. And I think what might be a little bit less interesting is Vic having emotional problems, not being able to emotionally process these things correctly. It certainly is interesting in some limit, but seeing more Melinda, I think, would have only done a great deal of good to the movie. Let's talk about what actually is happening here. So spoilers ahead. If you want to go see Deep Water, I think it is a fine movie for those who really are completionists in the genre. So go ahead and watch it. Come back around and we'll get into it. So the story of Deep Water kicks into high gear when Vic threatens one of Melinda's flames, played by Brandon C. Miller, loosely with murder. So he says, hey, I killed one of my wife's boyfriends. You don't want that to happen to you. He skips town. As the film progresses, we see the ways in which that threat is actualized. Vic is a murderer. At first, many of the characters in the film don't believe that Vic could be capable of murder, but slowly one or two of them might start to get a sense. Well, particularly the character played by Tracy 
Stacey Letts. I personally think this film does a great job in the early section of leaving that feeling of ambiguity open to Vic's true motives. I thought the opening was by far the best part of the movie. My initial instinct, in fact, was to believe Vic, and that might be partially because I've been reversed in my expectations. I expected this to be a Gone Girl story where Melinda was the killer, but in fact, Vic was the guy. It was just sort of the anti-subversion of Gone Girl. So, Niv, let's talk about performance a little bit. So we've talked about the way that Ana de Armas portrayed Melinda. How do you feel like Ben Affleck's performance specifically was inherently trustworthy or was he not? And uh, how do you think that is different from, if at all, to how the script's actual structure reveals his character's true motives? Well, it's interesting as well, because part of the reason he was so successful in Gone Girl is because, you know, Ben Affleck has a reputation for not being liked very much, Uh, almost like unnecessarily not liked. And which was perfect for the character in Gone Girl because he might not be trying, but he always appears as like a bad guy that nobody likes and appears untrustworthy. Here, we're told Ben Affleck is trustworthy, but at the same time, that's what makes it really a good casting choice. And especially because you, I've seen Gone Girl. It's one of my favorite films and one of my favorite books, too. It was just kind of this thing where I'm being told he's trustworthy. I kind of want to believe he's trustworthy, but I could immediately tell he's not. And what was really delicious about that is even though he was lying in the beginning that he did kill a person, he eventually does. And I think the is he not or will he, will he not is like a cool question to ask in the beginning because you don't know who's telling the truth yet and that's like the fun game to play so there's some interesting plots that Vic gets in the story which I would love to hear your comment on so there's a short scene where Vic mentions his job before retirement was involving military drones and while that moral gray area isn't touched on again I do still feel like it covers and colors the film a little bit so what do you think about the uh, introduction and dismissal of side plots like the drones and the snails, particularly the snail in the room here. Yeah, the snails were cool. And even the drones like was a cool like addition to this film, because as you said, it, it touched on morality. It's the idea that, yeah, you make software that is ultimately killing people and you're telling yourself that it's doing good. And that's ultimately what happens. Vic starts killing people, but he's telling himself he's doing it for the good of his marriage, for the good of their daughter uh, that he shares with Melinda. And with the snails, you know, like it's it's a creepy fascination, but it adds to the tenseness of the film. I agree. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> I feel like with most of his interactions are in his like weird snail shack or garage where he introduces Ana de Armas's boyfriends to his snails and he's always like yeah these are my pets aren't they cool but really i'm gonna murder you if you don't stop shacking up with my wife (laughs) you know it's like a weird set piece but it works because it's weird It, it gives it a uniqueness that the film sometimes desperately needs yeah I agree. I think it really adds a nice amount of tone. It also gives us a subversion, which is something that um, you mentioned was a a problem maybe that you would have liked maybe more subversion to a plot that tends to run a little bit conservative in a modern audience's uh, purview. But there is a subversion on uh, Chekhov's gun, which is that he is he has these snails and one of the boyfriends was going to eat the snails and you know that he's already murdered someone. And so you kind of expect him to go along with it and poison them with the snails. But he, in fact, doesn't do that, which is kind of an interesting thing and an interesting choice to be made on the movie. 
And it was actually one of my favorite scenes in that regard because he takes back control effectively and you get to see and it reveals character very nicely, which is that Vic doesn't really want to kill people. He wants control over a situation. It's funny you mention that because the same sort of situation happened near the beginning of the film where he's making like lobster bisque for one of Ana de Armas's boyfriends and his, the boyfriend arrives and says, oh, I'm actually allergic to shellfish. And then he gives him like a peanut butter sandwich. And I was just thinking to myself, or, or a grilled cheese sandwich. And I was just thinking to myself, why didn't he put shellfish in the sandwich? Would he have actually known? Not really. You, you could have just put in like little bits in the cheese. But stuff like that. He could have murdered people or given them allergic reactions in a less like brutalized way but that's not Vic's character he's which also makes him interesting because he's not malicious he's just impulsive because he's not actually a murderer totally he's not a sophisticated serial killer he's just a dude who's just really really stressed out about his marriage <laughs> so we mentioned that there are three men that Anaderamaz interacts with and you made a comparison to Blonde there and the first one is the Joel character who gets driven away then at the very end it's tony who he dumps in a river but the middle character is an interesting one isn't it because the famed character nate jacobs plays a part in the casting decisions because they brought a lordy in well Lordy was also in some Netflix movie, which I have not seen, but he... uh, the kissing booth, yeah. kissing booth, very big. I know the kissing booth numbers were huge, but um, so he has uh, the character Charlie Delisle, and he plays the piano and he has several brief scenes and he makes up a, a really interesting part of the movie, but it's relatively short in the grand scheme of things. So how did you like Jacob Lordy's performance here? And how does his character differ? Do you feel like from Nate? I mean, there are some obvious ones, but how do you feel like he portrayed that character? Was it an interesting way of going about it? Have you seen a Lordy in these kinds of roles before? I mean, I think that's such a difficult question to answer just because I, my core sort of relation to this film is that I feel the same about all three men. And even though like I thought they were all fine actors, I think one of my issues with the, this film in particular was the fact that every guy felt like it was fulfilling the same role for the movie, just like in Blonde. We talked about how there wasn't necessarily an escalation. The escalation was represented by three different men in Marilyn Monroe's life. The escalation for this movie was the same thing. It was three men that affected both Vic and Melinda's life. So they were functional characters, not side characters? Yeah, they were functional characters that we didn't get to dig deep on at all. Like you asked me what I thought about the character of Jacob Elordi. We didn't get much time to learn about him. We didn't get to really see him beyond his function as a character to the script. That's what made it really not interesting. That was one of the big problems of this movie because all three characters didn't necessarily have a personality beyond their function, which was like, hey, I'm a threat to you, Vic, because I am sleeping with your wife. Well, you mentioned escalation, but he certainly takes stronger action as time goes on, right? First time, he just dismisses the guy. Second time, it's drowning in a pool. And I mean, the third time, it's like a whole on assault. It's, I think, more 
more extreme and the emotions are more extreme and the characters in turn also have a lot more agency. Tony is more of a kind of hotshot type of guy. You know, he's got a lot more to lose. Whereas Lordy, what is what is he doing? You know, he's he's employed. He's certainly, I think, a little bit better. But the interesting thing is Tony is, I think, a, a good normal guy. Later in the film, Vic mentions his main issue isn't that she's dating other men. It's that he doesn't respect those men. And the interesting thing was with Tony, I feel like there is plenty to respect. With Alordi, he's, you know, boy toy material. And that was one interesting thing is I thought that he was lovely in that role because he gets to play a little ditzy. And I, I like that. But that's that. the thing we don't get to learn much about him. But you're right. There, In that sense, there was an escalation. But at the same time, it was just the same type of it. Like when you just remove the dressing from it, it's the same type of escalation. Vic is angry about a boyfriend and he does something about it. That's it. Like he runs a person out of town, he murders someone the second time, and then he murders someone again the third time. Yeah, you're right that it escalated in the way he did it, but it doesn't escalate the structure of the plot in any way, because he's still doing the same thing, which is getting rid of the threat just in three different ways, and the threat is the same thing over and over and over again. The threat doesn't change. It's still a guy that Melinda is bringing into their life. And what's really interesting is like the threat is never Melinda herself. They could not recognize that Melinda is the core of the problem because she's not only bringing guys in their life, but she's also sometimes and sometimes not actively pursuing a way to put Vic in jail by working with Tracy Letts' character to hire a private eye to follow Vic around town to prove that he committed murder. So there's that moment, right? And that is something that I think makes the movie kind of fun. But in general, I think I have some semblance of feeling for that, but I don't think intellectually I, I fully agree, but that's okay. The big thing is that, yeah, there is a lot of variation in terms of the way in which the film is portraying it, but whether or not it's moving at an incline or whether or not it's speeding up, I think there is a lot of room for debate there in the sense that it's a lot of subjectivity. And is it escalating to a fine point to a razor's edge? No, obviously not. Not every film is going to do that, but I think that also requires a really big amount of synchronicity to all departments. And I was going back to that to the, the very beginning where I was talking about how a lot of movies, it just is some of the things don't necessarily work. And so that is kind of the more broad scopes things. The lifestyle isn't necessarily condemned in the film, but it does seem to be an omen of something dark, not only in Vic, but in Melinda as well. His committing murder is then to outweigh the cheating, you know, so there's a little bit of morality in there. I, again, I will say the thing that was interesting is sort of the the degree we put men on, you know, that exp exploration of like a man is trying to give a woman her freedom and then he's being bashed for it. You know, that that in itself is in interesting because the relationship is not being actually respected. It just sucks because we don't see Melinda's perspective at all. So we don't see how societal expectation is, uh, is on her in relation to her relationship with Vic. But I will say that another thing I was disappointed by, which the film consistently brought up, was the fact that other women in this film were also ridiculously attracted to Vic. Melinda wasn't the only one in this film that had like suitors, but he did as well. He just never acted on it. You know, well, like, but they were all married and that's. 
kind of its own can of worms. Sure, but at the same time, you know, like they actively shown interest in him. And the film took time to show that they showed actual interest in him. Well, and he toys with them a little bit, which is how we know that this is the case. He, you know, he dances with the girls. It might be mainly to get back at Melinda, which that's kind of a gray area that I don't know if I would necessarily live or die by that take. But he definitely has moments where he toys around with the idea of it. It's just but that that's what I mean. With it. I, I actually would have been really interested to see how far they could take it, not just by toying with it, but actually doing it, actually doing it. When I saw the trailer, that's what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like a erotic warfare between the both of them. That's what the thriller sort of... That certainly would be interesting. And murder aside, like I get it, it's an adaptation from a book. But even the book synopsis was more interesting to me because it actually had a resolution. I talked about, you know, Melinda... Yes, the ending is a little different. Yeah, Melinda actively changes her motivations on a dime. Like there are are times where she supports like Vic's murder (laughs) because she herself is like, okay, you murdered someone, I'm mad at you. But at the same time, I can't say mad at you because you murdered for me. She literally says that last part to him. And then she hires a private eye to basically put him in prison. And then near the end of the film, when she realizes that he's murdered again, she's like, well, I should leave him. But then she decides not to. And then she's like, all right, I'm going to live with him now. All the while consistently bringing in suitors herself and knowing that she's the root of this problem because she knows that by not respecting their marriage, it's pushing him off the edge. She's aware of that. And yet she continues continues to do so and then feels guilty over his actions that she has actually caused herself to. I feel like it's mainly a time issue for me. You see a little bit of it. You you said that we don't get Melinda at all. I would I would push back a little bit. We definitely get some. We just don't get a ton. It is mostly Vic. We don't get enough. Sure. But she also has a lovely moment where she's talking to Vic about children. This is around the same time when she's talking about their marriage a little bit deeper. There's actually some good dialogue here. And she talks about how she didn't want to have kids or get married, but she had them for Vic. And that shows that she has a battle that is depicted in the script and that could have just gone a little bit deeper, which is that she doesn't necessarily have a strong sense of self. Her feelings tend to motivate her. And so what her actual cognitive wants and her drive does is playing the backseat, which is why she's flip-flopping so much, is because she's following her feelings, but consequently, the feelings change on the dime, and so the logic has to change along with it. And I think to you, that might read as a, as a weak character is what To I me, hear. that sounds like a great idea. It's just not executed well, because we don't see enough of it, because the structure of the, of the script is really weak. And I think the main issue is that, you know, I thought this when I was watching the film, I think this even more as I'm talking about it with you. The film doesn't work as a film. It should have been a limited TV series. Interesting point. I think that you might be right there. Yeah. The interesting thing is there, though, that um, Disney pulled this from theaters. Do you think this would have worked as a um, Hulu limited series? And if so, why? 1000%. There are so many characters that are really interesting, you know, on the surface. Does it follow the Hulu brand? Yeah, absolutely. It does, especially the Hulu brand. You know, you look at limited TV series like The Dropout, The Act, and the one, what's her name? The girl 
girl who uh, murdered, like essentially like pushed her boyfriend to commit suicide. It's like with Dakota Fanning. Oh no, Ellie Fanning. Yes. There, there's just so many shows that are dark and they're thrillery and they're all limited series. They're all just one season. And that's sort of, that has become Hulu's brand in a lot of ways. And I feel like this would work because this is the same sort of vibe. And ultimately, I think it would, the film does a really good job when it remains sort of a mystery of will he commit murder and when it like really focuses on the thriller aspects of the story. But it fails on its characters because it doesn't take the time to develop them at all. But in a TV series, that's what you do. You really like elongate the time you spend on each character. And there is not only Vic and Melinda, but just like the suburban families that are friends with Vic and Melinda. More Tracy Letts? I'm always a fan of more Tracy Letts. Yeah, absolutely. And you get to see his family life and sort of like his frustration that his wife is really into Vic, a person that he's trying to put in jail. That was a missed opportunity. I felt like that three-way relationship was so interesting that Tracy Letts is like a much older person in relation to his wife, who's much younger. And he has to compete with Vic, who's like a really handsome, really muscular looking man. He's not just trying to put him in jail because it's the right thing to do but he's also feeling emasculated but that's not explored enough even though like there are hints of it in the film and i think that's a shame it's stuff like that that there is good nuggets in here they're just not used to their fullest potential like i think about like fargo and how like that's all about tone and if you want to revitalize the erotic thriller genre in a way that becomes modern then you make it into a tv show that that not only like showcases that genre but also talks about how it's problematic and you can subvert it too we did only murders in the building and that subverted sort of like the whodunit which is a really old genre in itself with podcasts and stuff like that. And like I said, there are ideas here in deep water that talk about societal things that we deal with now, that men, they're pushed now to to rightfully give freedom to their partners and not entrap them. But at the same time, it could give uh, their partner power to do whatever they want, literally to do whatever they want to the detriment of you know the relationship where it harms the person. You know, it does that. That the thing that makes Deepwater like interesting in terms of humanizing Vic. But at the same token, because it does that, it therefore caricaturizes Melinda's character. And we don't learn much about her. We just see her sort of like swagger and style. And that's fun. But we don't un- really understand her motivations enough because it's not explored enough. And that's where it's harmful because it does the same thing Blonde does, which is it cheapens like a woman for the sake of the story that it's trying to say. I'm not on board with that. I think that is a great place to end the podcast. I certainly couldn't say it better myself. So yeah, you know, fun movie, I would agree. Fun, but a little shaggy in some places. And yeah, I would agree that a lot of the the politics could have done with a little bit of massaging. On that note, we are Jordan and Niv, and thank you for listening. Um, We should be more positive, hopefully, on our next episode of Zeitgeist. But regardless, thank you for tuning in. Always been a pleasure. And yeah, uh, both of these are on streaming now. So Blonde 
beyond, I, I would say um, you might as well find something else to watch. There's a lot of good stuff on Netflix right now, particularly by the time we publish this episode. I've seen a ton of really good stuff. The Stranger is one. So that I'll th- recommend. Um, we won't probably do an episode on that. But uh, Deep Water, fun movie that we both wish was a series. <laughs> yeah. So as always, I am uh, Jordan Conrad. And I'm Neve Boz. And we are signing off from Zeitgeist today. Thank you all for listening and have a good week and we'll see you next time. See you next time.